The book of 2 Corinthians is the Apostle Paul's second letter to the believers in Corinth who were being influenced by false teachers proclaiming a different gospel. As a physician cleans and bandages a wound, Paul addresses the contamination of the Corinthians' hearts and applies the healing balm of the gospel. Paul uses their real-life situations to apply gospel truths in real time. The gospel is worked into our hearts, causing us to recognize its deep implications in every dimension of life. We can trust that the Holy Spirit is working to transform our hearts, unmasking our own cultural idols, and recentering our lives around the promises of God. 2 Corinthians. Well, I hope you have your Bibles open now at the uh, 10th chapter of the uh, book of 2 Corinthians. As we look at, we're going to do two sermons on it. <clears throat> and we're going to handle just six verses this morning, but you'll see they're very, very challenging uh, verses. So, it is clear that these final four chapters of 2 Corinthians take a different tone than what we've been studying already. Some scholars believe these uh, chapters were added to the letter after it was finished. Now, that wouldn't be unusual because in that day they had scrolls and sometime Paul would be dictating what he wanted put on a scroll and it would, he would do both sides of it and it would run out and so they would stop and then later on at another time he would go ahead and, and have more scrolls and they would add on to it. It's, that wasn't unusual. But uh, so... Some also believe that these three chapters are actually, uh, 10, 11, 12, and 13 actually, are actually the severe letter that we mentioned during our own ongoing study. And we mention that letter quite often. Nevertheless, what we're reading here is simply the final appeal of Paul to the church in Corinth that now has responded to the severe letter sent by Paul through his friend Titus. And you'll remember in our last study, I hope, a couple of weeks ago, that that, that particular uh, situation in Corinth had really reached the zenith, and they were, they were starting to come around. Titus was sent by Paul to be able to go there, and they accepted him, and Titus came back, and Paul was so glad that they accepted him and that the church was sort of in a turnaround uh, mode. And so Paul will soon be <clears throat> visiting Corinth, and he wants to now make it absolutely clear how he feels about those who are still in the church in Corinth, accusing him, and how they should be treating these false teachers, these Judaizers that were in the church. Now, these four chapters of 2 Corinthians are the most insightful writings into Paul's character that we have in the Bible. Here we see a picture of what Paul was really like. His detractors said he is one thing when away and another thing when he is present. They said that Paul writes strong letters, but when he visits the church, he's just a wimp. He has no confidence in himself. He's a weak person, no impressive speaking abilities. One writer puts it this way, that he wasn't half as good a speaker as he was a writer and that though he sounded imposing when far away, he was actually insignificant in person. 
He was, in any case, just another human being doing what all human beings do, not a truly spiritual person, as some of them claim to be. So Paul's detractors who mocked him will soon learn Paul's communicating skills, both in written form and personally, exceed what they projected. So 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Look at it in your scripture. Paul has this written. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. He's talking to the Corinthian church. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold towards you in a way. Now, this is a brilliant piece of irony, of sarcasm. Paul is saying, though, he is saying, I am humble and gentle. The Greek culture in Corinth saw humility and gentleness as weakness and cowardice. Actually, Paul could have been quoting Jesus here. In chapter 11 of the book of Matthew, in verse 29, these are the words of Jesus. He said, take my yoke upon you, Christian, and learn from me. Why? Because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I have to sort of take an aside here and just say this to you. If you weren't here on Wednesday night, um, Reggie did a sermon on Matthew eleven twenty eight to the end. Now, I've spoken on that passage many, many times. But the sermon that he brought Wednesday night was the best teaching I have ever heard on this passage. And so I urge you to go on our website and to listen to it, to watch it. Uh, you'll be glad you did. But Jesus is truly gentle and humble. And Paul is saying, I'm gentle and humble too. Now, the next four chapters are a direct rebuke to the false teachers in Corinth. They would not have missed Paul's point. So look at verse 2. He's talking to the whole church here now. I beg you that when I come, Corinthians, remember Paul started this church, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be toward some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. Who are we? We as Paul and the other apostles, but it's really, we're all like that. We all are not to be living by the standards of this world. Then in verse 3, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world, on the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Now, the key word here is strongholds. This is the only place in the New Testament that we find the word stronghold. It's a war world, a picture of a walled city with tall towers and well-equipped warriors seemingly impregnable by the enemy. Paul's language is a metaphor about spiritual attacks against the gospel, especially against his teaching. Now look at verse 5. Verse 5, Paul writes, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. 
One of the most important aspects of these verses is Paul's assertion that his weapons are spiritual and not worldly, or another word for worldly is fleshly. They aren't of the flesh. The strongholds Paul is talking about are not physical fortresses, but philosophies and ideas the world has come up with without the knowledge of God. These ideas are being used to attack the word of God and tear down those who have placed their faith for eternal salvation in Jesus Christ. Paul has already talked about the wisdom of this world in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. If you were here, you'll remember it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 18, reads this way. Paul writes, Do not deceive yourselves. What he's saying to the Corinthians is, Stop kidding yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, as some of you do, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written in Job chapter 5, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again in Psalm 94, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So the second half of verse 5, look at it in your Bible. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This is extremely important to understand. When an enemy was defeated and the strongholds were destroyed, the soldiers were taken captive. That's Paul's metaphor. Only the soldiers here represent our thoughts, our thinking. Thoughts that we are to take captive. This is a profound subject. We have control over our thinking, and we must be responsible to guard our thoughts. Now, the first meaning is that we are able to defeat the arguments that attempt to discredit the gospel, the good news about Jesus, if our thinking is biblical. We turn their arguments back with our proclamation of truth. Let's go back to 5b again. And we take captive every thought. That's the key word here. Every thought to make it obedient to Christ. If you want to live a great Christian life, then you must program great thoughts. The best way to do that is found in the pages of Scripture. And the best, I like to say, proof text is, of course, in the book of Romans where Paul's magnus opus theologically. Most of us here have memorized or at least know well what it says in Romans 12, uh, chapter 1 and 2. Paul says at the beginning, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, I urge you in view of God's mercy, I mean, just think about what God has done for us to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, of course, when they're listening to this, it's very real to them because they have seen sacrifices every day of dead sacrifices of animals and the blood and all of that at the altars. Uh, even in the pagan uh, culture of the day, they had those kind of sacrifices. But Paul is saying, I want you to offer your bodies as a living, not a dead, but a living sacrifice. Holy, meaning set apart for God's purposes. 
and pleasing to God. And then he says, this is your true and proper worship, which is another way of saying it's the only thing that makes any sense if you think about all that God has done for us. And then, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Now, it would be quite correct to translate it. Stop conforming. Stop it. Don't any longer conform to the pattern of this world. If you don't do something to stop it, the world will conform you to its pattern. You can't just sort of relax and say, I'm saved now, and so <laughs> whatever will be will be. It is what it is. And, and if, you, if you get that attitude, then it won't be long to become just like the world. Nobody will be able to tell the difference between you and the rest of the world. So Paul says, stop it. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. That's the word metamorphosis. That's the caterpillar becoming a butterfly. And we, we can, ha that'll happen to us. So it says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Stop being a caterpillar, become a butterfly. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His, what is his will? His will is good, his will is pleasing, and his will is perfect. And we can know God's will. That simply means to read our Bibles, study our Bibles, memorize passages, and meditate on their meaning, and live their message. And, and I, can, I feel compelled to add this. Be careful of your screen time. Now, that used to be when I started preaching. <laughs> Why? You know, to be careful what you watch on TV. But today, that has expanded exponentially. When I say be careful, I am saying we must be very discerning. We must be so soaked in a biblical worldview that our biblical mindset immediately sets off alarms when what is said is contrary to truth. I find this especially problematic on YouTube. Now, I watch YouTube a lot, but there's no other place that has more life-destroying minefields than YouTube. It has the best and the worst, and we must be able to tell the difference. How? By taking our thoughts captive. Now, let's go back to verse 5 again. Verse 5. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, ultimately, this is a picture of spiritual warfare. Every pretension means every idea contrary to the knowledge of salvation uh, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then verse 6 reads, and we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Now, this is tough talk. He's writing this to the Corinthian church, and he's saying we will be ready to punish, meaning himself and the others are going to visit the church, every act of disobedience once your obedience, Christians, in Corinth, in that case, is complete. Paul is saying that he would prefer the Corinthians to get their act together and discipline those who are dividing the church. And he's saying, if you don't, I will. 
Without doctrinal purity, a church eventually devolves to the same status as a service club or a motivational gathering. Now, the church is not against service clubs or motivational gatherings, but the mandate of the church is the Great Commission. When Jesus left this earth, it's the last thing he said. It's found in Matthew chapter 28. And part of it says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. This is Jesus' command to us, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And many of you know the grammar well enough to know that what it, the way it really can be read is, therefore, as you are going, you are to be making disciples of every kind of person you can meet. That's what it actually says. As you're on your way doing whatever you're doing, going to work, being at work, in your sport, uh, wherever you are, wherever there's other people, you're to be doing all you can to turn them into disciples, to tell them about Jesus, to show them what Jesus is like, and then to help them to grow and to bring them into the, the church, the body of Christ. That's, that's our call from God. If somebody says, well, God hasn't called me. Yes, he did. He said, as you're going along in your life, be making disciples of all nations. No, I can't do that. Sure you can. You do it by taking every thought captive. You do it by living out the gospel. I see bumper stickers from time to time that say, Jesus is the answer. And I often wonder if those who put the stickers on their cars have really thought through uh, what some of the questions might be. And by the way, I think it's a good statement because you see Jesus is the answer to the questions being asked in the world today. And we have the only permanent answer to the problem of evil and the certainty of salvation, we have the gospel of Jesus Christ to deliver to the world. And for that to happen, the church, that's us, must be doctrinally pure, and leaders and people must be biblically unified. Now, there are many attacks within the church today that must be confronted. The attacks from outside the church are much easier to deal with but the attacks from inside are far more subtle and dangerous. We have self-help preachers who seldom mention anything of sin or hell or biblical morality and believe, and this is expanding lately, that we should be delinked from the Old Testament, don't need it anymore. I mean, they don't want to offend anyone. There are those who teach that we should never be sick or poor, just send money. <laughs> and there's some churches that put so many burdens on people's lives of rules, lists, legalism, guilt trips, that there's no joy in their lives. They cause us to live by the flesh rather than be empowered by the Holy Spirit. So the question for this morning is, what are these weapons Paul is talking about? That's the question for this morning. The Corinthians understood what they were. We need to look through our Bibles to identify them. So the first weapon is truth. Truth is the biblical worldview. We know where evil comes from, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We know about the fall of the Satan, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah chapter 14. We know about what the end's going to be like, Revelation, the last book in our Bible. We understand why things are happening in the world today and where history is going. And so if you want to know how to fight in the spiritual battle that we're in, you have to turn to chapter 6 in the book of Ephesians, and you should memorize at least starting at verse 10. 
Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 reads this way. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Now that is an incredibly profound and important statement. <clears throat> our struggle today is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the unseen world. It's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, in the heavenly realms. It's so important that we understand that. The culture around us needs to be changed. So God put some salt and shone a light into the culture to change the culture. And the salt and the light are what we call Christians and what we call the church. There was a, I was at a conference Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and, um, and the, the opening speaker was incredibly profound in what he had to say, and he was handling all of the situations that are going on in the world today and gave a sort of a history of the church uh, from the beginning, but also of cultures uh, way back in past Roman times and all that. And then he said, uh, to quote my favorite theologian, Phil Robertson of the Duck Dynasty, <laughs> and I can't remember the quote word for word, but, but I'm, it's good enough. Uh, Phil Robertson says, if the church would be the church, then what's going on in all of this culture couldn't be happening. And do you know he's right? Because we have stronger weapons than the world has. So Paul then tells us that we are in a battle in the unseen world. But Paul then goes on to describe the weapons of our warfare by describing the dress of a Roman soldier. So first one, the helmet, the helmet of salvation. We put the helmet on. That's when we become saved and justified and understand that we're free now. And the breastplate of righteousness, that's one of the most important pieces of armor. It's, it saves your heart. But more than that, we are righteous according to God because Jesus died, the righteous for the unrighteous, on the cross. And when God sees us now, he sees the blood of Jesus washing away our sin. And then you put on the belt of truth. Truth. Nothing could be more important. Uh, the truth. Uh, only we know the truth. Jesus is the truth. And then the shoes of the gospel. Uh, that means that wherever we're going, we're going to tell people about Jesus every chance we get. And that we're going to plan our lives that way and strategize and pray uh, that way. And then he uh, talks about uh, the shield of faith. The shield of faith with which you can extinguish all of the flaming areas of the evil one. Because if you're going to live this way, the way God wants us to live, you're going to have a lot of flaming arrows aimed at you. The attack of Satan will come. And so we have the shield of faith. And then the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And all of this, so we can use our most potent weapon... Prayer, prayer, prayer is so important. Uh, you know, the disciples came to Jesus and said, <clears throat> teach us to pray. And he didn't write them a prayer. That's the way we sort of take it, don't we? If I were to say the so-called Lord's Prayer, 
even in King James English. Most of you could just follow along and out loud, no problem at all. And that's good in one sense that we need to understand it. But Jesus wasn't giving them a prayer so that they, uh, I, I watched a, just a TV program the other day and somebody says, okay, you pray our Father. And of course, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And we just go through it just quickly and every don't even make any mistakes. We know it so well, or many of us do. And uh, no, what he did is he laid out for them who God is, our Father, who we're to pray to, our Father, where is he? He's in heaven. And it's not just that I'm to pray, but he's our Father. We're part of a family, the family of God, and we're to, uh, we're to pray for each other, with each other, thinking about one another. And then he tells us about temptation and all of that things, and, and we pray for our daily bread and everything. And so he's teaching them to pray, not just a prayer. And there's now, I've read some written prayers that are really inspirational, but we need to just learn to talk to God. Now, there's a dichotomy between good and evil that the world does not understand today. The gospel tells us that all of us are enemies of God. Every human being is an enemy of God. And the way you make peace with God is through Jesus Christ, who came to die on the cross for our sins, uh, so that we can now have peace with God and we're no longer enemies and then we can understand the peace of God which transcends any kind of understanding. So Jesus made it clear that as far as the world is concerned, there'd never be complete peace in the world until he returns. Never. But everyone, everyone can now have peace with God if they will turn from their sinful ways and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is the truth. And Jesus is the truth. In answering a question, he said that. He said, uh, I am the way and the truth and the life. And in, even in saying that, he was claiming deity. He was saying, ego of me, I am the truth. And he said it three, three times, I'm the truth, I'm the way, uh, I am the life. And it, was, it takes you back to Exodus where the burning bush is there. And Moses says, who shall I say sent me? And God says, say, I am sent you. And that's exactly why Jesus was saying this, because God is giving us everything we need to be able to obey all his commands. And they're not burdensome. So if you want to live spiritually, not worldly or fleshly, and successfully, you must know the truth, who is a person, and his name is Jesus. In John chapter 8, Jesus said this, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Isn't that interesting? If you hold to my teaching, well, where do we find your teaching? In the Bible. His teaching is in the Bible. And the Bible is inspired by the Spirit of God. So the whole Bible is his teaching in that sense. So if you hold to my teaching, if you obey the Scriptures then you're really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And people like me ask right away, like, free from what? Well, free from the fear of death, <clears throat> free from the power of sin, free to live our lives for God's purposes. So we must learn the truth, life as it really is. 
by understanding the Word of God, the Bible. Now, another weapon that we have in our arsenal is love. Love. Not the distorted, romantic, or exotic, erotic uh, idea of love we see on our many screens, but the kind of love that is only possible through a relationship with the living God, who is love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, in the world, love is something that I feel if you treat me in a certain way. In the Bible, love is a verb. It's an action word. It's something we do even to our enemies. We love our enemies. I mean, that's almost impossible to even think about, but Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount that we're to love our enemies. I really like <coughs> reading, excuse me, the Tyndall Living Bible. Now, I recognize it's not a translation. It was written by a dad so his kids could understand the Bible. And I find it very comforting to read it. Now, in the, um, the, the New Living Translation, they took the Living Bible and good translators translated it better. But I like the paraphrase of 1 Corinthians, especially the love chapter. When I used to do uh, a lot of counseling before we got a counseling ministry here, and a couple would come to see me that were having marriage problems, I always had printed up some sheets of paper with uh, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians on it and would hand it to them, and I had a little way I'd go through it with them. And so we would start to read it. First, I'd just read some of it. Uh, love is very patient and kind, never jealous or envious, never boastful or proud, never haughty or selfish or rude. And then I would stop, and I'd actually trade pages with them because I had little blanks in there for their names. And I'd have them put their names in there. Carl is very patient and kind. <laughs> Carl is never jealous or envious. Carl is never boastful or proud, never haughty or selfish or rude. <laughs> and then I like this. Love does not demand its own way. It is not irritable or touchy. I'm not irritable or touchy. And I don't hold grudges. By the way, grudges, that's worse than cancer. And I'm not just trying to make an illustration. It is. It'll destroy your life. So love is not irritable or touchy. It does not hold grudges. Now listen to this. And will hardly even notice when others do it wrong. And I guarantee if you're living life at all among people, somebody will do you wrong. It is never glad about injustice, but rejoices whenever truth wins out. If you love someone, you will be loyal to that person no matter what the cost. You will always believe in him or her, always expect the best of others, and always stand your ground in defending them. There are three things that remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Now, try that without the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's impossible. Then the next weapon we have to wield is faith. Faith. Here's the definition of faith. If you haven't memorized it, you must. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for. It's not a hope so idea. It's being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And without faith, it is 
Impossible to please God. What a line. And without faith, it is what? Impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him, God, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him, really want to know him. Now, the opening verse of the Bible requires faith, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We believe that by faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 reads, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible, of what was visible. I was um, listening to my satellite radio in the car uh, yesterday, and there was this person speaking about the universe. And it was kind of interesting. It wasn't a Christian thing I was listening to. He was explaining uh, about the telescopes and, the, uh, and all, how they've been able to see, he said, the, the full universe. And so I'm listening to this. I'm fascinated by this stuff personally. And he said, we've recently discovered some new moons. And he talked about these little tiny moons that they found. And then he talked about this one big moon that takes uh, 27 years to go around the planet it's orbiting. 27 years. And then he just makes this simple statement. He said, it's the biggest moon in the universe. And I just laughed. And I even talked to the radio. I was alone. <laughs> and I just said, it would be better to say... It's the biggest thing we've seen so far in the universe because <laughs> you have no idea how far it is. We're learning a lot, but it, should, it amazes me it doesn't make everybody bow down just learning anything about what, what the universe is like. So it's by faith we look forward to eternity as we pass through this temporal short life on earth. In Hebrews 11, verses 8 to 10, I've been teaching in the... Wednesday services and others also. Just recently I taught uh, this part of it. It says uh, about Genesis, uh, by faith, Abraham, this is chapter 12 in Genesis, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. And by faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Think about that for a minute. Abraham was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Are we, is that what we're like? Uh, is that what you're like? Uh, are you looking forward to eternity? To the new heavens and the new earth? I mean, we really need to develop that. It's, it, there's a good illustration for it that happens to us all the time. Uh, maybe you're going to go on your first cruise, and it's a week away. And you get all excited, and you've never been to the places where the cruise is going to go. Someone at the conference told me about going to a cruise uh, where Paul had gone, uh, where they went to Europe and did this cruise. And Everything, it's just like everything's there. And all, all of a sudden, for that week before you go, all of the problems and troubles and stuff that are going on in your life kind of fall away because you can hardly wait to get there. Or you're going to go to Hawaii maybe for a vacation and you're a surfer and, and you can hardly wait till you 
get there. And all of the days before, everything falls away. Well, we're in the days before, before the, that we'll see the city with foundations whose architecture and builder is God. And that's what we're to live for. Now, we're saved through faith. And everybody here knows Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for it is by grace. That means we don't deserve it. You have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. Faith is a gift of God. And it's not by work so that no one can boast. Just being saved and understanding that we don't deserve it should change our, well, it does change our lives completely if we understand it. So faith is extremely practical. It is because of faith I have in the character of God that's revealed in the pages of my Bible that I have no fear about either what is happening on the world scene or even what is happening in my little life. And of course, you go back to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And it says, and we know that in all things God works for good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. All things? Yes, all the, like, give me some examples. Just watch the news for about an hour. And then look at the verse, and it says, all those things, God works for the good of those who love him. Everything that's happening out there that's impacting our lives, God works all that for the good. We have nothing to worry about. And in 1 John 5, 4 and 5, it says this, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. We're overcomers. I was part of a ministry for a number of years called Overcomers. It was huge. It was an addiction ministry. And it was amazing seeing how some of those men and women overcame terrible backgrounds and, and problems. So we're overcomers. For everyone born again of God, born of God, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? Even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And if we believe that, we can overcome anything, doesn't matter what it is. A Bible-believing Christian is the only one who can live with eternal confidence, always defeating our impressive-looking enemy. Now, another essential weapon, of course, is prayer. Prayer. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, in praying to God. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, I, could, I won't mention the names, but you could go on YouTube, and there are some preachers. I've, I've watched them, and they'll say this. They'll say, now, when you're praying and you get to the end, don't, you just say, amen, you know, in the name of Jesus, amen. Don't say, if it be your will, because if you say, if it be your will, that means you don't really have faith to believe it, and therefore it's not going to happen. That is totally ridiculous. Why would we want anything that wasn't according to his will? And when we get to heaven, we're going to find out that uh, we're so th we'll be so thankful that God didn't answer the prayers that we prayed the way we prayed them. <laughs> Uh, that's somebody said to me between services, I like to say to people, God will answer all your prayers. You're just not going to like all the answers. <laughs> I thought that was, that was great. I wish I had a thought of it. But uh, 
but this is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, and we know his will because we have our Bibles and we, we are discipling one another and learning from one another and, uh, as, as we go along. And if we know that he hears us, then whatever we ask that's in his will, of course, we know that we have what we have asked of him. And it should be our total desire all our lives to learn more and more about the will of God. So watch out now that we don't just want God to answer our selfish prayers rather than prayers that honor the truth, prayers that demolish strongholds, prayers that advance the kingdom of God on earth, prayers that draw us closer to each other and our eternal Father. Paul's purpose in writing this letter was to correct the church and preserve its witness. We are in a spiritual battle for the truth against the world's lies and opinions. So it's important we present ourselves for duty daily and pray for one another, encouraging each other as we meet together and participate in God's plan for our lives in the church and among those who need to know the truth. No one ever had to wonder what Paul believed because he lived his belief. The main reason the church is not changing the culture today is due to the lack of one anotherness in the body of Christ the body of Christ, the Christian body, the bride of Christ, the Bible calls the church. What a privilege it is to be part of God's plan for the ages. And we, the church, are responsible for our reporting for duty, our love for one another, and our witness among those in the world who need to know the truth. It is selfish, disobedient at its core to not use the giftedness, and we've all been given gifts by God, that we have in showing the world our love for each other and our commitment to unity in the truth. Each of us has, has something to offer that is necessary for us to demolish Satan's strongholds. And by the way, that's unique. Every one of you here, no exceptions, have something that is needed so that we can to, 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 to be used in the body of Christ and in the world where you have to go out in to demolish strongholds. We're all important. And God has called every one of us. Sometimes people say, well, God hasn't called me to anything. Yes, he has. He's called you to be like Jesus, in a sense, in the world. I like what C.S. Lewis says. We studied about spiritual gifting and the body and all that here a lot recently. Uh, here's just a, a, just a sentence or two out of mere Christianity. Christianity thinks of individuals not of, as members of a group or items in a list, but as organs in a body. And we studied that. Different from one another. And each contributing what no other could. Do you see how important you are? Uh, Ray Stebman said in his, uh, in his 1980 sermon on this passage, he was preaching on this passage, in 1980, I'm going to end with this quote. And here's how he ended his sermon. We will find tremendous changes beginning to occur quickly 
as God allows these weapons to destroy the strongholds of darkness and evil around us. Do you know anything more challenging for our day and time than that? By the way, that was written in 1980. It, it needs to be re reiterated today. Do you know anything more challenging for our day and time than that? God has placed in our hands the opportunity to change our nation, our communities, our homes, wherever we are. May God grant that we will do it. And then he's quoting Jesus. You're the salt of the earth, Matthew 5.13. You're the light of the world, Matthew 5.14. You turn the light on to chase away the darkness, and you put the salt on to improve the taste. And we are to be changing the taste of the world, and we are to be pushing back the darkness of the world, even if it costs us, and it will, and that's fine because we're a family and we'll kind of rush to everybody's help. You know, I, I, if you're not on the uh, prayer wall, it's called, in our community, you need to be on the prayer wall, especially lately. I've never seen so many people at one time in such uh, difficulties and troubles, uh, health, <coughs> excuse me, health problems, and I've never seen so many people praying for them and then going even a distance to visit in hospitals and other places where they to, to help these people, to bring them meals, to pray for them. We are to be a family that the world looks at and just says, wow, look at that. Look at them. And many people will be asking us then for the reason for the hope that is within us. And we need to be prepared to tell them about that because we need to be taking our thoughts captive and fighting that spiritual battle because we'll always win in the end. And what we have coming is better than anything we could accomplish here in eternity. So we have to watch out about the, the there's a lot of talk today, and I'm teaching, in our home fellowship, I'm teaching the Revelation. There's a lot of talk today about the end times, and that's good. And But one of the dangers of talking about the end times is that we kind of, we want the Lord to come like tomorrow because I've got this problem and this problem and this problem. What we really do is we want to think it looks like the end could be coming soon. Therefore, we need to work even harder than ever to try to tell as many people as possible about Jesus by the way we live and then sometimes we'll have to use words. So let's uh, pray together. Stand with me and pray and then we'll worship. Father, I just thank you so much for your word, the power of your word. I thank you for the Holy Spirit who we all have that allow, gives us the ability to not only just obey your word, uh, but to uh, be comforted, to be changed, to be encouraged, and then ultimately to see people saved. And I just pray, Father, that if there's anyone here and before me in this group that doesn't yet know Jesus, or if there's anyone online who's watching and you don't know Jesus, don't wait. Don't, just come to Jesus and say, oh, dear Jesus, save me. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a sinner. I need to repent of my sin. I don't even know how to do that, except if you'll come into my life, I know you'll help me. 
Please save my life. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. Thank you for raising from the dead. Remember, the Bible says God so loved the world. So that's everybody we know who isn't a Christian. And if you're here today and have never given your life to Christ, do it today. Don't wait. We don't know if we have another day. And so, Lord, I just pray that for the rest of us that you'll work in our lives. What a great thing you're doing in our church here. We need a revival. It'd be great if it started here. In Jesus' name, amen.